lot of things that we find really hard. Things that are hard for us to do. It's hard for us to wait patiently, isn't it? It's a hard thing for us to do. I imagine that it's hard to ride a unicycle. But I'm not sure of that, but we could probably ask Jim Spiegel how hard it is to ride a unicycle because he rode one at the, uh, um, what was that called? Uh, The talent show, the talent show. Uh, I find it extremely hard to hit a golf ball. I mean, literally just hit it. And I certainly find it hard to hit it long and hit it straight. That's a very difficult thing to do. Here's something that's hard. Try to describe to someone what water tastes like. Try to say this, 11 benevolent elephants, five times really fast. 11 benevolent elephants. It's hard to say five times fast. Some things are virtually impossible for us to do, like tying your shoe with one hand, like sneezing but keeping your eyes open. I don't even know if that's physically possible to do that. But harder than all of these things is perhaps a command that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a command to love our enemies. We find this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. These verses where we find this are part of a section in the Sermon on the Mount that actually begin in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5. And in verse 20, Jesus says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then what follows in Matthew chapter 5 are six illustrations or examples that all begin with this phrase, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said. And those examples serve to contrast the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes with true kingdom righteousness. The contrast of the righteousness that must be exceeded by true kingdom righteousness. And the last of these six illustrations has to do with loving our enemies. It's found again in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can follow along there. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find one of these Bibles uh, near you in uh, the seats, and that's on page 473 in those Bibles. So our word this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word. And hear now from Holy Scripture. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Well, I think these verses can be summarized by this. Our loving Savior teaches us as his disciples to demonstrate kingdom righteousness, true kingdom righteousness, by loving our enemies. Our loving Savior teaches us as his disciples to demonstrate 
true kingdom righteousness in contrast to the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees by loving our enemies. And he does this in four ways. The first, Jesus offers a correction. He offers a correction. Apparently, according to verse 43, the teaching of the Jews in Jesus' day is that way they were to love their neighbors but to hate their enemies. Now, that they were to love their neighbors is clearly taught in Scripture. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But what about the second part of their teaching? They were to love their neighbors, but what about hating enemies? Well, the Mishnah, which is a written collection of ancient Jewish oral tradition, which would have been prevalent at the time of Jesus, says this. This is written in the Jewish Mishnah. If a Jew sees a Gentile fall into the sea, let him by no means lift him out. For it is written, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, which is Leviticus 19.18, but this Gentile is not thy neighbor. So according to the scribes and the Pharisees, a Jew was required to love his or her neighbor, understood to be a fellow Jew, but not to love an enemy. In fact, they taught that you were to hate an enemy. And the Old Testament might seem to support this at points, right? I mean, we read that God commanded Israel to destroy the Canaanites under Joshua when they, when they were entering into the Promised Land. And some of the Psalms, referred to commonly as imprecatory Psalms, some of you may have heard of those before, the psalmist is actually seeking judgment against his enemies. But we can't spend a whole lot of time on this, but we have to understand that the Canaanites were destroyed under Joshua not because they were primarily Israel's enemies, but they were God's enemies because of their wickedness. God used Israel as an instrument to punish his own enemies. And likewise, very similar, the psalmist is not seeking personal vengeance against a personal enemy, primarily for personal offenses committed against him in those psalms. He's not doing that. He counts them as his enemies first because they are God's enemies and they are opposed to the divine honor, to the extension of the kingdom, and subsequently, they are opposed to his people's welfare. And the psalmist is not taking personal vengeance. He's pleading to God to act. He sees that he can only be vindicated before his enemies by God being vindicated, by the prevailing of the righteousness and justice of God who acts. He's not speaking of purely a personal enemy. And so it's really still right for us to pray prayers like these psalms. It's right for us to pray for the prevailing of God's justice and his righteousness. I mean, after all, how could we really be loving our neighbor well if we simply tolerated the rejection of God and his truth and his righteousness and allowed societal evil and wickedness to go on unchecked? We can still pray these prayers, but the religious leaders of Jesus' day concluded that this warranted hating one's enemies. But this command is found nowhere in scripture. The command is found nowhere in scripture. In fact, we read this in the Old Testament from Exodus 23 verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. 
If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. We read this in the Proverbs. If your enemy is hungry, don't hate him. Give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And so this teaching from the Old Testament is consistent with what Jesus is proclaiming here in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's important to make another correction here as well before we move forward. It's important to understand that the Sermon on the Mount addresses personal ethics, how we respond personally to certain situations, to enemies. In other words, it shouldn't be taken to refer when Jesus talks about turning the other cheek, which is in the verses just prior to the ones we read, that this has to do with how we're responding personally. It shouldn't be directly applied to those who are authorized to officially act in the interests of the public. In other words, we're not talking here about a military soldier or a police officer or a circuit judge who's been entrusted with protecting, defending, securing justice, or exacting proper punishments for crime. They're acting as officers. The Sermon on the Mount concerns our personal ethics in our responses. And so when it comes to how we personally treat an, a personal enemy, we can strike back and hurt an enemy who has hurt us, specifically what Jesus tells us not to do when he tells us to turn the other cheek, or we can simply try to avoid or ignore an enemy. But we're pushed beyond both of these options, striking back and completely ignoring, because what we learn is that we're called to positively love our enemies. Because Jesus also issues a command. This is the first time the word love appears in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's concerned with who? Our enemies. So let, let's deal with that first, and then, then let's consider the what of the command. The who of the command, and then the what of the command. The who is our enemies. Who are our enemies? Well, we all likely have some or have had some. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have to tell us how to deal with our enemies. But an enemy is basically understood as anyone who seeks to harm you in some way, someone who seeks to injure you in some way, someone who is antagonistic against you or opposed to your welfare. Just a basic understanding of an enemy. But this can come in various forms. It can be expressed by active hostility, or passive neglect. Think of the Exodus passage. If you see a donkey of your enemy under its burden, don't just leave it there. Don't just neglect it. Okay? So this harm can be either from active hostility or passive neglect. This harm can also be physical or psychological. Abuse, whether it's physical abuse or emotional abuse, is an act of an enemy, regardless of that person's relationship with you. Whether that harm is intended to be physical or emotional, abuse is an act of an enemy. The person who uses you or dehumanizes you or seeks to control and manipulate through guilt or anger or fear or threats or intimidation is acting like an enemy. This enemy might also try to harm you directly or indirectly. In other words, it might be directly against you, 
person also might be seeking to harm you by, say, harming your children or inflicting injury upon someone that you love. Again, either physical or psychological. Enemy also might be known or unknown. Might be a complete stranger, but an enemy may be someone that you live with. It might be a relative. It might be the jerk at work. It might be a person attacking your reputation or slandering you or scheming for your failure or insulting you. It might be a person stealing from you or taking credit from you. Could be anybody. Finally, an enemy could also be temporary, like the person acting in hostility towards you in traffic, very temporary, or it could be much longer duration, which is often the case. So who are your enemies? What enemies have you had or do you have? Think about that. Who are your enemies? And then think about this. How do you treat them and how do you respond to them? Do you strike back? Do you repay evil for evil? Insult for insult? Hurt for hurt? Jesus' command is for us to love them. That's the what. To love them. Let that sink in for a minute. The command is to love your enemies. Love the person who's been spreading lies about me? Love the person who is mistreating my children? Love those people? Love the person who is abusing me? Surely Jesus goes too far here. Surely he's expecting too much. Should we just let the abuser keep abusing and the slanderer keep slandering? No, that, that, that's not what we're learning here. It's not what we're being taught here. Because loving your enemy doesn't mean that we can't call the police. It doesn't mean that we ignore issues of justice. It doesn't mean that we disregard proper punishments for crimes that are committed. It doesn't mean any of that. But it does mean this. It means that we relinquish the right to render justice ourselves through personal retaliation and vengeance. We relinquish that right to render justice ourselves, which means this, we don't insult back. We don't slander back. We don't abuse back. We leave justice in the proper hands and we leave vengeance to God who says vengeance is his and he will repay. I mean, to, to just refuse to do good, to withhold good, to respond with biting words and insult and hostility and violence is only going to add more ugliness to an already ugly world. But it's more than just relinquishing the right to retaliate. Jesus commands us to positively love our enemies. And there's a parallel account or parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, where it's unpacked a little bit more for us what this means. So in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you, which is similar to the pray for those who persecute you that we read in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And so here's what loving your enemy looks like. It means doing good to the one who hates you. It means responding with acts of kindness and care and grace 
in response to hatred directed against you. But it's not just doing good, it's speaking good of others. So when others speak poorly of you, when others curse you, when others insult you, when others slander you, you speak well of them. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that there's no room to criticize and condemn the ideas and methods of others. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean there's no room to condemn or criticize sinful ideas and methods that others are employing. And it doesn't mean that there's no room for rebuke when we say, bless those who curse you. Sometimes one of the most loving things we can do for someone is to confront them with their evil and their wickedness. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that we don't verbally attack people. It does mean that we don't degrade them. It means that we don't demean them. It means that we don't insult them, not in person to their face, not behind their back, and not on Facebook. We live as if somehow something on Facebook or Twitter doesn't really count. It does count. You can insult and slander and return hate for hate on a Facebook post. And Jesus says, when others curse you, respond by blessing and not by cursing. Loving them also includes praying for them. Praying for them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in The Cost of Discipleship, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his or her side, and plead him or her to God. Do you imagine that? Is that how you're treating your enemies? Those who persecute you, those who abuse you, go to your enemy, stand by his or her side, and plead him or her to God. Now, if all this sounds difficult, it should. It's unnatural for us to love our enemies. Christian counselor Dan Allender describes it like this. Doing good in a fallen world requires an ability to wrap our hands around a thorny weed, feel the pain of needles piercing through our gloves, and yet pull with the kind of might that does not stop at the first signs of resistance. Love involves a willingness to bleed in the midst of unpleasant, undesired conflict. Love in a fallen world involves a willingness to hurt when confronted with enemies. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do good and to love in a fallen world when that encompasses your enemies? Now again, notice Jesus doesn't command us to like our enemies. He doesn't. He doesn't command us to agree with our enemies. He doesn't command us to support the cause of our enemies. He doesn't call us to excuse the evil and wickedness of our enemies. And he doesn't command us to lie down for our enemies either. He commands us to confront our enemies with love by repaying hatred with goodness, by responding to curses with blessing, by responding with hostile hatred, by praying for them. We're confronting, we're pushing back against enemies 
we're pushing back with love. Allender also writes this. Why is it so inconceivable that love in this fallen world is a weapon to destroy evil? Is that inconceivable to you or to me? Do we have a hard time believing that light is stronger than darkness and that love is stronger than hate? Well, we might be willing to do all of these things for our family and our friends. On our good days, we might be willing to do this for family and friends that have injured us, but not our enemies. And so Jesus also extends a challenge. That thing shouldn't be up there. I'll get to that in a second. Jesus says in verse, verses 46 and 47, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You love those who love you? That's good. You're nice to those who are nice to you? That's good too. But Jesus says there's something natural about that. People naturally do that. He calls his disciples to much, much more than that. Jesus is saying that there's to be something radical, something special, something unnatural about the way we care for other people, about the way we treat other people, about the way we love other people as Christians, not just our friends, but our enemies as well. So is there anything unique about you when someone makes an obscene gesture to you in traffic? Or you, do you just gesture back? How do you respond when people oppose your political convictions? How do you respond to those people? What kinds of prayers do you offer, if any, for those who have mistreated your children? And by the way, these aren't extreme examples. They're not. These are the people Jesus is talking about. And this is why Jesus has to extend this challenge because we're so quick to excuse ourselves from actually having to love certain people. Ah, she's a conservative. Ah, he's a liberal. But they're atheists. But they're bullies. They bullied my children. He's a racist. He's a white supremacist. And if you think this takes it too far, I would encourage you to listen to one of the several sermons that Martin Luther King Jr. preached on the topic of loving your enemies. He didn't avoid that because he understood this. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate only adds more hate understood that. And again, he also understood that loving the enemy doesn't mean we don't stand for truth, for justice. We don't stand against oppression and evil and sinful ideas. But what it does mean is that we don't get a pass on actually loving our enemies because we've qualified it to death. None of us in here get a pass on actually loving actual enemies. That's what Jesus calls us to do as his people, as a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. 
The command is not to be understood as love your enemies unless. The command is to be understood as love your enemies even if. Love your enemies even if. I wonder how might our culture, how might our political climate, how might our Facebook posts and social media, how might Charlottesville, how might our churches look and sound different if Christians were taking this command seriously? How might all those things look and sound differently if we were taking these command, if, this, if we were taking this command seriously? Considering Jesus' challenge, Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones is right to ask, is there anything special about you? I'm not asking whether you're living a good, moral, upright life. I'm not asking whether you say your prayers or whether you go to church regularly. There are people who do all that and are still not Christians. If that is all, what do ye more than others? What is there special about you? It's love that sets us apart. And a love that extends not only to our friends, but to our enemies as well. And a love like this is not only unlike the world and the love we find in the world, a love like this is like God, and it's like Jesus. And so forth, Jesus encourages children. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 45. He says, love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You know, in one sense, God is pretty indiscriminate with his love. He's rather promiscuous with it. He blesses not just the good, but the evil. He blesses with rain not just the just, but the unjust. And Jesus calls us as his disciples to do the same. In verse 48, this is what this means. You, ther you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus isn't exhorting us here to be sinless. He's calling upon us and encouraging us to display a love that's complete, mature, ripened. It's the idea of the Greek word here for perfect. In the context, he's calling us to display a love that's an imitation of God's love, which is shed upon not just the good but the evil, and not just the just but the unjust. But notice here that Jesus uses not the language of God. He consistently uses the language of your father. Your father. He uses familial language. The reason we're to display this extraordinary, unworldly kind of love is because we're a special people. As his disciples, we're children, not just of God in a general sense, we're children of our father who is in heaven. You know, children can bear a remarkable resemblance to their parents and their physical characteristics and their mannerisms, the way that they look, the way that they smile, the sound of their laugh, the way that they stand. Isn't that crazy? Sometimes children can stand like their parents, the way that they walk. What Jesus is telling us here, that we're to look like our heavenly Father in the way that we treat and we love not just our friends, but our enemies. I've got my dad's eye color. And I'm to have my heavenly father's heart when it comes to the way I extend love to others. 
Not just on the good, not just on the just, but on the evil and the unjust as well. And more than anything else, what enables us to demonstrate this love is the recognition that our sin once made us enemies of God in heaven. My sin once made me an enemy, but because our heavenly Father loved his enemies, he gives the grace of adoption. He sent his son Jesus into the world to reconcile sinners to himself and to make them children. Romans 5.10 states it plainly. While we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So Jesus doesn't just teach us this command to love our enemies. He demonstrated this command by loving his enemies. He doesn't just teach it. He did it. He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done for us through his life and death on the cross for us as enemies. Jesus loved his enemies. He did good to those who hated him. He blessed when others cursed him. He prayed for those, literally on the cross, for those who abused him. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He did this. And he calls us to follow him. By our sins, we were enemies of Jesus. And by our sins, we crucified the Son of God. But the Father didn't respond to our mistreatment of his one and only beloved son by destroying us in his wrath. He didn't do that. That's what I feel like doing when children are mistreated. The father didn't do that. What did he do? He loved us. And he sent his son so that we could be his children. So he could make enemies his friends by the power of love. Do we believe in that power? Again, do we believe that light is stronger than darkness and love is stronger than hatred? As an enemy, I was loved by God and Jesus. So how can I now treat those who curse and hate me as my enemies by cursing them and hating them? Loving your enemies requires a supernatural intervention of grace. It does. It calls for us to be rooted in the gospel. It can only be exercised by those who are recipients of the Father's love in Jesus. Is that you? Have you received God's love in Jesus? By recognizing your own sin. By recognizing that your moral failures and your moral deficits have made you an enemy. But the God who made you extends offer of salvation forgiveness to you by turning to Jesus, repenting of your sins. Have you done that? Do that today if you haven't done that. And have this love that empowers you to love enemies. It's not natural for us to love those who are mean to us, who insult us, who hurt us. It's supernatural. And we need his grace. To die for a spouse, for a child, for a friend, for a country, these things are heroic. But to die for an enemy, this is divine. To die for an enemy is divine. That's amazing love. An amazing love that we're called to show and to give because it's an amazing love that we have received from our Father in Jesus.
And it's amazing love that we can sing about. We're going to do that in just a second. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we, we're so challenged by this command. The command is so clear. And yet we so frequently ignore it. We so frequently excuse ourselves from doing it. But Lord, this morning we give you praise, Jesus, that you didn't ignore it, that you loved your enemies unto death to rescue us. And so, because you've done that, because you've transformed us, because you've taken up residence in our heart by your spirit, help us by your grace to be imitators of you, Father, and to love our enemies as you have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name.